All right. Awesome. Let's go ahead and grab our seats, and then we can grab our Bibles as well. We'll start with that. That sounds great, right? So grab your Bibles. We're going to actually be in the Act series again this evening. Just going to give you a little bit of a heads up so that way you can turn in your Bibles and be prepared for when we actually get to read uh, this evening. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. So go ahead and open up to Acts uh, 21 and just keep your thumb there on that page. But just want to check in with you real quick and ask if you had a good Thanksgiving. I trust, yeah. You all look wonderful. So I gained probably about five to 10 pounds. I'm all Thanksgiving dinnered out at this point. I've had the leftover sandwich that you make every year, you know, but hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving and we thank you uh, for being with us here uh, this evening. I'm excited just to hop into God's word with you. Last week, uh, Pastor Tim had us take a closer look in preparation for Thanksgiving. He had us take a closer look at Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, and he really encouraged us to learn how to be joyful and thankful in all of life's situations and circumstances. And it was a really encouraging passage of scripture that moved us to this place of really trusting that whatever God brings into our life, he brings it into our life for our good. Do you believe that? Even though we've been through some stuff, even though we've been through some difficult things in life, we can be confident that if we know God, if we know God as a sovereign God, as a loving God, that whatever he allows, whatever he brings into our life, he intends to use it for our good. And that's a a really wonderful and encouraging challenge, but it's difficult sometimes to embrace that challenge because we've all experienced moments where we're wondering, okay, God, what is it that you're up to? What are you doing here in this situation? Because it's really hard to be thankful. And it was an incredible message, and, and I was really thankful for that message as we moved into Thanksgiving. But today we're actually going to hop back into our Acts series to the ends of the earth one more time. I couldn't resist uh, hopping back into this Acts series one more time before we begin our Advent series. So you probably saw that on the announcements there, the greatest Christmas family We're going to look at the greatest Christmas family uh, ever given to us in Scripture that we know of, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then us, how you and I are a part of that family. And so we're looking forward uh, to that together. But right now we're going to be uh, this evening in Acts chapter 21 as we discussed. But before we look at this passage, what I want to do is I want to provide us a brief overview of where we are in the book of Acts so we can fully appreciate what's happening in the text that we're about to read. So I'm going to try to to catch us up to where we are. So even if you haven't been with us during this series, uh, you'll be able to understand what it is that we're talking about tonight. So Paul is on his third and final missionary journey. That's where we find Paul in this passage. And if you remember, on the first missionary journey, I actually have a slide here for you um, of the missionary journeys. A little bit crazy looking, but this just gives you a visual, at least, of the missionary journeys that Paul had been on. And on the very first missionary journey, we saw the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Antioch which marked the beginning of the Gentile church. If you remember, that was what uh, we were encouraged very, from the very beginning um, of this series is to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. 
And you can see how in each of those missionary journeys it spread further and further, even up until this very day where you and I are sitting here on the other side of the world 2,000 years later, and the gospel is continuing to make its way into the hearts and the minds of people saving sinners like you and I, right? It's an incredible thing. And so the first missionary journey, we saw the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Antioch, which marked the beginning of the Gentile church. Then on the second journey, we watched the gospel spread even further than what was thought possible. And it crossed over the Aegean Sea and churches throughout Macedonia were planted. It was during this missionary journey that Paul takes the news from the Jerusalem church, from the church in Jerusalem, that the Gentiles are not required to follow the law the way in which that the Israelites, the Jewish people, were following the law. They removed that burden from them. The only thing that they needed to do was to refrain from eating meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled meat, and from sexual immorality. And so the letter, the aim of the letter that Paul is bringing on his second missionary journey is to bridge the gap between uh, the Jerusalem church, the Jewish believers, and the Gentile church, or the Gentile believers. It aims to unify the racial divide that was formed in the early church. And as we see, that letter will again play an important role in the passage that we're studying today. So Paul's now been on two missionary journeys, and then finally Paul takes one more missionary journey to strengthen the churches that he had planted on his other journeys, and while on this journey, he spends a significant amount of time in the city of Ephesus, and he travels among the churches collecting an offering to bring support back to Jerusalem to further bridge the gap between the Jewish and Gentile believers, and on this final journey... Paul is repeatedly warned about going to Jerusalem. But Paul, constrained by the Spirit, continues to move towards Jerusalem, and he's determined to do it. He's led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, and even though he's told that what is waiting for him in Jerusalem is chains, he continues, despite those warnings, to move in that direction. And so today's passage is the final story. I don't know, I've been really enamored with the character of Paul as we've studied uh, throughout the book of Acts together. And I've gotten like emotionally attached to this guy in a way that I just feel like we're following him on this epic adventure, this grand adventure. And today is the last time that we see Paul as a free man. From here on out, Paul in his own words, is in chains for Christ. You can read about it in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. What is important for us to note is that although Paul is imprisoned from here on out, his ministry is not hindered. In fact, Paul clarifies that his chains only serve him to advance the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Paul has always desired to go to Rome, and now in chains, he gets his trip paid for. Free of charge, he gets to head to Rome. So with pen in hand, Paul single-handedly from prison takes on the Roman Empire. Paul would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. I don't know, if it were me, I'd probably at this point give up. 
I'd probably think, man, look how much I've done for you, God. I've been on three missionary journeys, planting churches, thousands of people coming to know Christ. I've been stoned. I've been beaten. I've been imprisoned. And now here I am, imprisoned again, and I think I've had enough, right? I'm checking out. I think I've done enough for you. But Paul is unrelenting. So with this in clear view, understanding where we find Paul in this story. Let's look at our passage today and see what we can learn from Paul. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses." telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, there's much to say about this passage and not nearly enough time for us to unpack all of it. So we're going to do our best to lift some principles from this passage that you and I can apply to our lives. So first, it bears repeating that this is a narrative section of Scripture. That means what we are reading is descriptive, not prescriptive. What we are, we, we are not being told what to do, rather we're being told what had happened. Does that make sense? This is just a story of the account of what was happening in the life of Paul. It's not at all meant to tell us exactly how we are to live. So as a result, everything in this passage may not seem to translate directly to our lives, but if we look very carefully from the example of Paul found in these verses, there are some principles that carry over, and if we allow them to have an impact on our lives, can transform our walk with God. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to learn from Paul's example We're going to learn from Paul and from James and from the elders and see from this story what we can learn for our own walk with God. And there's a lot, actually, that we can learn here. I feel like this ties into previous messages that Pastor Tim has preached. And really what you're going to see as we look at this passage together, 
again, I hope it's okay to repeat this, and maybe we just need it ground into our minds and our memories, but we're really going to learn how to live within the will of God for our life, how to know and discover and to live confidently within the plan that God has for us, which is what I think all of us really desires as believers, is to know God's will and to live for God obediently, to know that we're on track, right? To know that we're not missing his plan. So before we look more closely at the principles that we see in this passage, we need to understand what is taking place. First, we see Paul returning from his long journey abroad, and it's important to note that as Paul heads home back to Jerusalem, he's likely nervous about how he would be received by the church in Jerusalem. He's been on the road now for a long time, and we get the sense from the letter that he wrote to the Romans that he hopes that his service to the saints in Jerusalem would be acceptable. He's been gone for so long, he doesn't even know really who makes up the Jerusalem church apart from James, right? And so he doesn't know what he's walking into. He's been out busting his butt for for the kingdom, trying to convert lost people, trying to spread the gospel among the Gentiles, and he has no idea what's going on at home base. He has no idea what's taking place back in Jerusalem. And so as he heads back to Jerusalem, there's a little bit of anxiousness in his heart. He's worried about if his, if his service to the saints in Jerusalem would be acceptable, if the offering that he took from all of the Gentile churches would be enough to show the church in Jerusalem, that they can be united, that they don't have to be a church divided by racial boundaries. And much to his relief, we are told that he was received gladly. Paul arrives back in Jerusalem with several of those whom he picked up along his journey, several people who he converted along the way, including Luke, and they receive a hero's welcome. They likely stay in the house, you can read in verse 16, of a man named Nason. I can't really pronounce that that well. It's M-N-A-S-O-N, Nason. How do you, you know what I mean? Is it Mason or Nason? No, it's Nason, all right? So they they stay in this uh, this man's house who was likely a Hellenistic Jew who would have been more comfortable hosting Gentile guests in his home. And so they receive this dinner, this welcome home from their journey abroad. And then the next day, Paul and his entourage, in a more formal setting, go before James and the elders. James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so interestingly, what we're watching, I think incredibly, is the progression of the early church. As it was established, initially, the apostles established the church with Peter, right? We see Peter at the helm. And then Peter flees Jerusalem after being imprisoned, and he leaves the church in the hands of James. You can read about it in Acts chapter 12. Now, in this passage, with no apostolic oversight, we see the church being elder-led with James as the chief elder. This was always God's plan. Ephesians chapter 2.20 teaches us that with Jesus as the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church. Now here we see James and the elders building upon that foundation, and we are doing the same thing right up until this very day. We have the foundation 
of the apostles' teaching in God's word. And we get to build upon the foundation to the point that here we are, still, like I said, 2,000 years later, continuing the ministry that Paul and the other apostles had started. Seeing lost people come to know Christ, seeing believers discipled and strengthened in their faith, pushing back the darkness in our world, glorifying God by the way that we live our lives in the world around us, amen? And so it's really incredible what you and I get to be a part of, that we're a part of this ancient tradition and religion of what God has been doing throughout all of time. That's what you and I are a part of. We're the continuation of what happens in the book of Acts. You know, when Acts was finished being written, it was written in such a way that it doesn't seem like the story ended, and that's because it hasn't ended. We are the continuation of the story. We are the church. We are the church that God uses at this time, in this day, in this age, that God uses to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what you're called to. I don't know what your career or job title is, but that's not your calling as much as it is you're called to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ who makes disciples and followers of Jesus Christ wherever God has placed you. You think that that home you have is an accident? No, God gave you that address and he put you next to those neighbors. You think the family that you're in that gives you such a hard time over Thanksgiving dinner is a mistake? No, I know that you would love to have different family members, right? But God has placed you in that family as a believer to make a difference so that they might know Christ. There's a call on your life, church, to be the people of God wherever he has placed you. Do you believe that? That's your mission. That's your purpose, to make disciples. So with the church of Jerusalem firmly established, Paul then goes before James and the elders and notice what Paul says, verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. We, hear, we see here Paul is quick to give credit to what God had done recognizing that all that was accomplished by his hands was in fact God's work. And here we see the first key principle that we can learn from Paul in this passage as we look to live for God, and that is humility. Humility. You know, I think the greatest extent of our humility, and we see it modeled for us by Jesus, but by Paul especially, is our willingness to suffer for Christ. The degree to which you're willing to put your neck out there for what you believe. The degree to which you're willing to put a target on your back because you stand up for Christ. That's the degree to which you have humility at work in your life as a believer. If you realize that you ought to say something, but you refrain and you bite your tongue because you're afraid of how that might reflect upon you, that's pride. I've been there too. I've done the same thing. I've made the same mistake. But we see here modeled for us by Paul this characteristic of humility. And we see this continually modeled by Paul. And we can't neglect the importance of humility in our lives. Not only do we see humility exemplified by Paul in this moment, but we see it all throughout this passage. The fact that Paul, an apostle, 
is allowing himself in this passage to be accountable to the elders is already an incredible display of his humility. He's Paul. He's an apostle. He doesn't need to answer to anybody. After all he's done, after his resume, as if he would need to give an answer for his actions, and yet that's exactly what he does. He reports back into the church, to the apostles, to James, right? And he puts himself under the authority of the elders. And we'll see his humility on display again when he submits to the costly request of James and the elders that unfortunately and would ultimately result in his arrest. After Paul gets done sharing the testimonies of all that God has done through his ministry, they're quick to praise God. But they almost forget one minor detail. While Paul was out on the frontier, James and the other elders were working hard at home, weren't they? Spreading the gospel throughout Jerusalem. And just like with Paul, many people in their church came to know Jesus as Lord as well. Likely thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. This is a mega church, right? This is like massive. This is beyond the grasp of just a few elders. There are tens of, likely tens of thousands of believers living in Jerusalem who James and the elders are overseeing and shepherding and pastoring. The church is exploding. The issue that arose was that many of the Jews who were saved in Jerusalem heard about this Paul guy and they misunderstood him. Gossip began to spread about who Paul was, what he was doing, and what he was about. They were under the impression that Paul wasn't just spreading the gospel among the Gentiles, but that he was in fact telling Jews who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire to forsake Moses and the law. And the church is, it's important for us to see that the church was still in a bit of transition. In a few years, God would take care of this issue. Jerusalem in 75 AD, the temple would be destroyed. But right now, the Jewish religious system was still very much intact. And even though Paul and James knew that you couldn't merit your salvation by keeping the law, the Jewish customs were still very much a part of the lives of those who lived in Jerusalem. For Paul to be viewed as telling other Jews to forsake Moses and the law could jeopardize the conscience of his brothers. And so something had to be done. James, along with his fellow elders, devise a plan. They ask Paul to perform a purification ritual. There's two things happening here, right? There's two things that we see taking place, two different rituals that are taking place. They ask Paul to perform a purification ritual, which would take place over the course of seven days. Right after three days... He would go to the temple and he would be blessed. And then at seven days, he would go back to the temple and he would be blessed. And then he would be ceremonially clean, right? But because he was out traveling amongst the Gentiles in the world with worldly people, at this point, he came home and he was dirty. 
And so he needed to make himself pure. And so they asked him to go through this purification ritual. And in addition to that, they asked him to make arrangements for these four men who have performed a Nazarite vow, which basically just means they consecrated themselves and separated themselves out for God. And they asked Jesus, uh, they asked Paul here to, to pay for these men's vows. And so once he's done going through this purification ritual for himself, he's to make arrangements and pay out of his own pocket for these men to be able to finalize their commitments that they made to God. And here's where things begin to get a little bit interesting. Should Paul do this? Are James and the elders even right for suggesting this idea? And is Paul sinning if he puts himself back under the law? Either way, what we'll find is that, as it turns out, it's terrible advice. And Paul would be foolish to take it because if he takes their advice, he would be going into the lion's den. And so here we learn another valuable lesson from Paul and James. If you have humility in your life, Humble believers can take risks. Humble believers are decisive. Humble believers make decisions. And what I mean is that whether or not this is bad advice, or even if Paul is wrong to take the advice, his heart of humility enables him to make a decision. Where Paul's heart, if it were full of pride, might cause him not to take a risk. Of course, of course, Paul knew the dangers that awaited for him if he were identified in the temple. It's bad enough that Jewish believers already had an issue with Paul, but what would happen if the Jews who persecuted the church found that public enemy number one was right within grasp? And so I, I'm reading this passage, and I find this to be the most challenging portion of the message in preparation, commentary after commentary kept going back and forth about whether Paul made a mistake. Go figure, Paul is fallible like you and I. Paul can make mistakes. Some accused him of even sinning, putting himself back under the law. But whether or not Paul was wrong or James and the elders were wrong for suggesting it, it didn't stop God's plan for Paul from being accomplished. How incredible is that? That even if Paul made a mistake, God's plan was still accomplished through his mistake for his life. Come on, do you love the Lord? Yes. Do you want to live for God? Yes. If you make mistakes, God can take those mistakes and use them for his glory in your life. Amen. You haven't missed God's will for your life. You haven't missed God's plan for your life. Even if Paul was wrong, God still used it to accomplish his plan, which I think should be an incredible encouragement for you and I when it comes to moments in life where we feel like, I don't know what to do. Well, have humility and then make a decision because ultimately what you recognize is that God is in control because even if we make a mistake, can't we trust that God is working in our mess? If we have the kind of humility of Paul it enables us to take risks and to be decisive. Truthfully, our ability to make decisions in difficult moments is ultimately a reflection of our faith in God's sovereignty and goodness. Instead of relying on our own ability to get it right 
or living in fear of making the wrong decision and messing things up or messing up God's plan for our lives. Because indecisiveness can be the sign of a heart that doesn't fully trust in God. Of course, this isn't a license to do whatever you want. Instead, it's a call to decide with the confidence of somebody who is filled with the same Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the grave. As we see here, even if it was the wrong call, God ultimately used this moment to accomplish his will for Paul's life. Author Kent Hughes says this, Some hearts never risk anything. They strive neither for sin nor for sainthood. They desire a temperate zone free from the storms of sin and from the tempests that accompany a life of service. Never burn for the souls of others and you will avoid rejection. Never suggest a plan to reach the community or the world and you will never be criticized for it. Never give counsel to someone undergoing the pain of separation or divorce and you will never give errant advice. But just think of all the heavenly checks you will never cash for yourself or others. Church, can't we humbly take risks for the kingdom of God? Can't we trust that he is bigger than us? That his plans are superior to our plans? And that as we look to live for him, if we are in fact filled with the spirit of God, he will get us to where he needs us to be? Because that's what we see. Listen, we have the advantage of reading the story and knowing how it ends. It's like watching a movie and getting a glimpse of the ending of the movie at the very beginning, and then the rest of the movie is all about how we got to that moment, right? But Paul didn't know. Paul didn't know how. He didn't have the luxury of reading ahead in his own story. All he knew is that he was called of God to spread the gospel to the Gentile nations and to suffer for Christ. That's all he knew. And as he lived that out, God got him to where he needed to be. As Paul freely decided to submit to the request of James and the elders with humility, God was behind the scenes orchestrating his plan for Paul's life. It's a beautiful reality that you and I experience as Christians as well. The Spirit of God at work in our lives, us freely making decisions with humility with the ultimate hope of knowing that God has a plan. It's guaranteed. So maybe Paul, James, and the elders got it wrong. And as we'll see shortly, that plan backfires. And ultimately, it lands Paul in prison. But did they really make a mistake? Because wasn't this God's plan all along? Going back to the beginning of Paul's conversion... You read in Acts chapter 9, didn't the Lord say to Ananias to go to Paul? For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Then again, more recently in Acts, as Paul says to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, it says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. 
but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of the Lord. As it turns out, Paul, a humble and decisive leader, is right where God wants him to be, bringing me to the last principle that we'll look at as we close today. Spirit-filled believers who are humble, decisive, with the right motivation, will consistently find themselves in the center of God's plan for their lives. So what was Paul's motivation? Paul tells us, we already heard from Paul in Romans 14, verses 13 through 15, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, let it not, or what, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Lastly, let's see what Paul says of his kinsmen in Romans 9.3. Or I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So here we see the motivation of Paul displayed before our very eyes. Paul's motivation is love. Between Paul's humility, his willingness to take risks and be decisive, and his motivation of love, what we find, church, fellow believers, we find a winning combination of how we can live confidently within God's plan for our lives. If we have humility, if we're willing to take risks for the kingdom, and if the motivation for those risks is a love for God and for others, you will consistently find yourself right in the center of God's will for your life. Do you believe that? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, it's incredible to read what you did through Paul. And God, I know that it might not be apples to apples, that we read this story and we may never find ourselves in the same situation that Paul found himself. And yet, God, if we follow Paul's example, if we look to live a life of humility, and if we're willing to step out and take risks for you because we know that you're sovereign and that your spirit is working through our lives to accomplish your will. Father, if we would walk humbly and risk making decisions, Father, and if we would learn to have the right motivation of love, we will find ourselves exactly where we need to be. So God, help us to love you more. God, I pray. Lord, I thank you for your word this evening. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.